everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 507, the real story of the NBA betting scandal with Sean Patrick Griffin. Joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, we have a great interview for our listeners today. Yeah, really interesting conversation with uh, Sean Patrick Griffin, who's, you know, literally written the book on the NBA betting scandal. And it's a topic that many of our listeners will be familiar with. Some won't be. I think either way, you're going to learn something new because, you know, we talk in detail about how the way the story has been reported is pretty inaccurate. But yeah, great conversation. So should we tell the listeners now to just pause and go watch the untold documentary on Netflix that's wildly inaccurate so that they understand when we poke holes in it later and then come back? No, I think I think more <laughs> listen to this. Feel like you see what the true story is and then you can go and watch the Netflix, the untold Netflix documentary on it and see how inaccurate okay. it is. But let's not push people away from the podcast um, yeah so don't pause no and right if now. and yeah as usual <laughs> if you want to skip ahead just to the interview that takes place about 30 minutes into the podcast but also we you know like you to stick around beforehand but you know we don't cover the nba itself much i'm actually going to talk about a sport that we may never have spoken about before and Can I take a guess go for it <laughs> sailing no ah <laughs> oh. <laughs> Right first letter, though. The world of snooker. Oh. Yeah. Which, <laughs> understand. Which maybe explain to our American listeners what snooker is, because they might not even know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a pool on a bigger table with slightly more go. complicated rules. And, <laughs> you know, understandably, it's not a sport we dedicate a lot of time to, although it is extremely popular in a number of different countries. And I don't mind playing it or watching it from time to time. But on the back of, or just ahead of us, talking about the NBA's betting scandal, uh, you know, I think snooker probably falls into one of those categories that you'd think would be a little bit easier to fix because you know you just need to miss maybe one shot. You know, and the margin for error is so small that you can make something look like you were trying and and something going wrong. One player who's not—I don't think we can accuse of fixing games, but Ronnie O'Sullivan widely considered to be maybe the greatest snooker player of all time, still active. He lost in the Northern Irish Open second round this week in a very surprising loss to a player who you would under no circumstances expect him to lose to. And he came out and said afterwards, I don't really have the passion and desire for it. I give it what I feel like it deserves. If I had to choose to do this, I wouldn't. I don't care anymore. The job ain't worth the stress and the hassle. Sometimes a loss is a blessing in disguise. It just allows me to do other stuff. Now, he's also... A blessing in disguise of $3 million? Well, he, I think <laughs> Is that he's what not, you're getting at, Eddie? <laughs> it's not so much that. I don't, I don't think he's fixing anything, but I think it's a larger ethical discussion that we can maybe have very quickly. He said... He went on to say, I've got a rule. I don't really talk about any of my matches. I leave it out there. It is what it is. I let others analyze and criticize while I move on and have a bit of lunch. 
If I can play one good tournament a year, that will do for me. Cut the mediocre ones. That's enough, really. I quit mentally about eight years ago, and I just take what I can from this sport. It's a good platform for me, allows me to do other stuff, gives me a lot of freedom. As far as winning goes or cementing my name in the game, there isn't enough good stuff in this game to get excited about. And he just describes it as an emotionless type job and went on to say he's, for this tournament, he's also working for Eurosport as in their, in studio. He went on to say that had he not been working for Eurosport for that tournament, he wouldn't have even turned up in the first place. Now, obviously when you have someone like with an attitude like that, does raise some questions about how easily they could be swayed to fix an outcome if they really don't care about, you know, he's admitting in a sense that he has no integrity in terms of trying to deliver his best performance. I think more are, if, if you're the governing body of snooker, shouldn't you automatically just come out now and ban him? Not, not because of match fixing, but just what does it do to your sport to have a player just openly come out and say, I really don't care. I'm happy to lose. It, this, none of this matters to me anymore. I mean, isn't this just the the snooker version of Nick Kyrgios? I guess, but I, I guess with Kyrgios, it's more he doesn't prepare well enough. But I think when he's out there, he at least probably goes into his matches wanting to win, and then maybe mid-match I, decides he doesn't because he can't be bothered. I think you're drawing a, f- like, a very specific and fine line as to when he cares because I've seen him admit going into matches that he really doesn't care. He was out all night the night before and then halfway through a match, he'll just literally give up almost without actually retiring. So I, I mean, I think, I think there are probably more players in more sports that have that type of attitude. Oh no, I think, and look, I think this is always a depressing thing as a sports fan when you, the percentage of players for whom, playing professional sports is a job. And by that, I mean, they just happen to be pretty good at it and have no passion for it. And it's just like the rest of us turning up for a nine to five where you're like, "Ah." I mean, in my ideal world, I wouldn't be doing this, but I get paid really well and the lifestyle's great. So I'm, I'm here. That always annoys sports fans because for so many people, right, it is their dream and it is someone just kind of, almost insulting you by saying the thing that you would give up anything to do. They could take it or leave it if they weren't getting tons of money. But again, I think this is worse to literally just openly admit, ah, I'm just, I'm just literally, I'm turning up for the paycheck. I mean, he's kind of admitting to not throwing games to, you know, from a benefit anyone, but just throwing games because he can't be bothered. He doesn't want to beat people and stay in a tournament because He's probably got his match. He's probably got his tournament fee for even being there. And then afterwards, like I, I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the best score you can get in a in a snooker break is a one four seven. That's potting all of the balls in the the kind of optimal order to get the highest possible score. Ronnie O'Sullivan once famously intentionally got. I think it was a one four five. It might have been a one four six because there's a bonus offered for getting a 147. I think at the time it was a 10,000 pound bonus. And he was of the opinion that 10,000 pounds didn't justify sort of witnessing the genius of the 147. So he intentionally pulled off something that is equally as hard, but didn't actually hit the target number. I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough thing to think about because 
you're right. At the end of the day, it's only a job. And I think in every job, you have people who are just pulling it in for the paycheck. And you're looking at one, Frank. <laughs> I'm going to- you're right. I, you're right. I am looking at myself in this camera. <laughs> <laughs> going through the motions as we speak. I gave up on this. But I mean, you know, I guess ago. at the end of the day is if if you're doing what your company requires you to do, then that's fine. But if your company feels like you're hurting the company, then they probably will fire you if you're just, you know, like putting in the stamps and, and going through nine to five. So I guess I guess the governing body of that sport would have to step back and say, is what he's doing still helping us? Or at this point, is it hurting us? And that's a tough thing to decide when you have a major player yeah. who probably is still bringing fans in to watch. So they're oh. definitely, it's definitely still helping, right? So I guess at that point, you kind of can't get rid of them. Oh, no, 100%. There's a lot of people who only know Ronnie O'Sullivan. Like if you ask them to name a snooker player, it's Ronnie O'Sullivan. And so removing him from the sport would definitely take some of the spotlight away from a sport that desperately needs it, right? And you know, talking about a mainstream sport by any stretch of the imagination. And I do think the other complicated thing, you know, you touch on in a team sport, yes, you'd have your accountability to your team and your employer. He's, you know, effectively like a freelancer. You know, all of these, if you're a golfer or a tennis player or whatever it is, unless you're now signed up with Live, you are just a sort of you know, freelance contract player. Yeah. How to get your live plug in for the day. Yeah. We haven't had it in a few weeks. So and and that makes it a little bit even more complicated because he's kind of only accountable to himself. And I guess his sponsors, there's probably some companies that sponsor him that read that and are a little bit disappointed that they're paying him money to hopefully get screen time. And he's saying, I don't want to be out there. So Maybe you should stop giving me all those sponsorship checks because you're counting on me making it to the final and getting X number of hours on you know on TV. And as far as I'm, I want to be out of there as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I guess speaking of people who don't want to be out there and want to get out as quickly as possible, you've given the perfect segue to the Cristiano Ronaldo story. Which why don't you explain to our listeners, maybe some people in America who haven't heard of the what has been going on at United. Yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo was an unused substitute in last night's match against Tottenham, where in which Manchester United probably put in their best performance of the season, uh, beating Tottenham 2-0, a very complete performance. And in the 89th minute, I think it was, Cristiano left the bench and walked down the tunnel, um, And which already, you know, like a lot of sports, I think people will be able to relate to the idea that kind of leaving the field of play or leaving the stands before the game itself is over is not great like it's not a it, it kind of shows that you don't care as much about the team and your teammates and you're sort of it's your own self-interest determining how interested you are in this in the in what's going on you could maybe defend him because he would have known at that point that he wasn't coming onto the onto the pitch so you could maybe defend him slightly for that one because you know if he wanted to go in and maybe receive some treatment that he needs or, you know, whatever it is, you you could spin it in a way where that's okay. But in addition to that, not only did he leave the field, leave this sort of go into the dressing room, he left the entire stadium. And yeah. So if he was going to get treatment, it wasn't the treatment you're thinking of. No, it was (laughs) maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe he subscribes to the Deshaun Watson form of treatment, but yeah, he was not a, well, was, I was just I was just saying maybe he was going to get a nice meal, Eddie. I don't know why you had to make it controversial. <laughs> well, I was still making a treatment, right? But he and and 
According to reports, he was out of the stadium before the match may have even been over, which is impressive. I didn't know you could actually leave a stadium that quickly. You know, like, he must have been the fastest. He's got a fast car. Yeah. And (laughs) and runs pretty fast, seemingly. I mean, he would have seen Cristiano Ronaldo, like, sprinting to his car. sprinted, threw off his clothes, put on new ones, and sprinted to the car and 120 out. (laughs) And reports then say that he kind of was in the – dressing room, changing rooms after the match, it kind of went unnoticed that he wasn't there because the Manchester United, his teammates were caught up in the fact of sort of celebrating a pretty significant victory. Um, and then it was only afterwards that it, it kind of all came to light that he wasn't there. Uh, Manchester United have announced that he will not be involved in their match this weekend. So that's already been... Yeah. So I guess I, I, something that I, get, I think American listeners need a clarification on, it's not that he will just kind of be on the bench and not starting. He is not on the squad, so he will not even be possible to be into the match, even as a sub. Yeah, he's he off of the squad. He's like off of the roster for the next match, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you have to name, you know, you, you have a squad size. You're only limited in the number of substitutes that you can name, and they have they have said that he will not be he would not be starting and he will not be part of the substitutes either. So as, as punish, like it's as punishment for what he has done. I mean, that's pretty much come out and said as well. They didn't, they haven't specifically said that, but I thought they did uh, from what I've seen. They haven't specifically said that they just now, I, perhaps I haven't seen all of the statements that have been made. What I saw was just them saying Cristiano Ronaldo will not be involved in this weekend's fixture, but Either way, I mean, everyone knows why it's happening, right? It's not a rant. It's not just, well, what a strange coincidence he's not involved. You have to assume that this is the end of Cristiano Ronaldo's time. I mentioned he already had an issue with this in the preseason where something similar occurred. And again, in the preseason, it was a little bit easier to defend. It's a preseason match. You can say he needs to, you know, he was going elsewhere to maybe help him prepare for the season better than him sitting in a stadium for 45 minutes or whatever it was. But this one's, it's a tough one for Cristiano Ronaldo. It's also a really just tough look for him. You know, part of the reason why he came back to Manchester in the first place was supposedly because of the passion that he had for the club, the relationship he has with the fans. And so it almost surprises me that he's handling it so poorly. I guess he is just really trying to force his way out. And maybe he feels like if he doesn't do things like this, that he won't be sold or loaned out or whatever the solution or contract, you know, mutually terminated, whatever solution they are going to come to, to allow him to leave. So he's trying to, I suppose at this point, he's just trying to force Manchester United's hands. It just does. It does kind of surprise me because, you know, it, not to say that I believe everything footballers say in public, but he does have a kind of special relationship with those supporters. He does definitely have a legacy at Old yeah. Trafford, and he does risk really tarnishing that through this type of behavior. Yeah, it's it's. I don't think it's a very good look. Um, but I guess my question then for you would be, do you think he is justified is not the right word, but... Obviously, in his head, he thinks he should be contributing more and that he still can contribute more. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of his abilities at his age right now? Or do you think he's thinking he is 
five years younger than he is and that maybe he can't make the difference that he thinks he can like is 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 he right in thinking that he should be a starter and he should be out there being able to score more goals and win them games? Um, I mean, the first question would be, is his expectation that he's supposed to be starting every match? I think he's just disappointed in how little he's involved altogether, right? Like, I mean, it's not even he's an unused substitute in a lot of matches. So it's not even that he's not starting. He's not actually even playing. I mean, aside from their Europa League, where he heavy he features pretty heavily and, and has actually put in some pretty poor performances. But you know, he's he's played well at times this season. I have no doubt that Cristiano Ronaldo still has the ability to contribute to a top team in a significant capacity. I don't know if he. I mean, it's he undoubtedly does not suit the way Manchester United are now attempting to play. He he can't. You know, the the Gagan press. The idea of, the, you know, for American listeners, you kind of think of it almost like a full court press. Um, the idea of, you know, Liverpool and Man City and a number of other clubs. It's, it's a, something that came out of uh, German football, hence the, the German name. It's very popular in the Bundesliga. Uh, Ralph Ragnick, who was the previous Manchester man, manager at Manchester United, was one of the kind of helped play a role in, in shaping it as a tactical approach. It involves sort of pressing, putting pressure on the opposition in their own half at very key moments and kind of trying to close them down and and force them into specific positions. That requires speed. It requires a high level of fitness. It requires a willingness to, as an attacking player, do a lot of dirty work that traditionally you probably wouldn't have associated with skillful skillful attacking players. And for the most part, there's been a really high level of buy-in from attacking players all around the world that they do this now. For Cristiano Ronaldo, I think he thinks, A, it's slightly beneath him, and also, B, he at 37 years old, he can't be just chasing defenders all around the pitch. Like His goal is to be in the right place at the right time to be able to produce that moment of genius. He's probably not wrong in that respect. So he is a square peg in a round hole in terms of how Manchester United are attempting to play, and I don't think he is that useful to them. So he's probably being used as much as he should be. But I can understand from his perspective wanting to be. I feel like he thinks that he was sold a bill of goods when Manchester United brought him in the first place, then disappointed. You know, he was supposedly extremely disappointed that last January they tried to shift him out. And since then, his his mood and, and his opinion of the club has changed dramatically. And I think that's why he's kind of behaving a little bit in the way that he is now, because he feels like they betrayed him then. So what loyalty does he need to have to the club itself? And, but, but yeah, so give I, me, go ahead. Give me the quick answer of does he leave? How soon and where to? Well, the, the, the earliest he can leave is January. I think he leaves in January. Okay. Where does he go? I don't know if I had to place a bet sporting Lisbon. Wow. Or it's just sporting, as we uh, have identified on a previous Inaccurately. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Inaccurately referred to it. I, I think because that's, I don't know which major European clubs are likely to want him, just because, again, the problems that he has at Manchester United would be similar problems pretty much everywhere, just because that style of play has become the dominant approach to tactically across European football. So he's going to struggle to fit in in a lot of places. Unless you see a scenario where, like, one of the major 
front three from PSG leaves. Maybe that could open up an opportunity for oh, him boy. there. We don't need a fourth in there to stir that pot. Fourth anymore. is impossible, <laughs> right? But but say hypothetically this Mbappe situation really unfolds, or in an in an attempt to appease Mbappe, they get rid of find a way to get rid of Neymar. Maybe that opens up a possibility of Ronaldo coming in. Still seems unlikely. I don't know, maybe somewhere in Spain, maybe somewhere in Italy, but I think realistically his best option, and again, from an image standpoint, him returning home to sporting, being back in Portugal, and he can kind of sell him, everyone on the idea that this is the right thing to do, even if it's taking a step down in terms of the quality and the significance of the club. He's also come out and said, not only does he expect to be in Portugal's World Cup's squad for this winter, which will certainly happen. He expects to be playing in the next Euros. So, you know, he expects to be in Euro 20, the Portugal Euro 2024 squad. He will be nearly 40 years old at that point. If he wants to be in the Euro 2024 squad, you know, people talking about the idea of him going to the MLS or one of the more obscure leagues around the world, that's not really a possibility because if he goes there, it's going to be hard for him to force his way into the Portugal squad. So, if he wants to play in Euro 2024, he's going to have to stay in Europe. He's going to have to stay in one of the somewhat major European leagues. Portugal would fall into that category. I think that's the most likely outcome. It's still, it's hard to see what the proper solution to the situation is. Yeah. I, I just heard you say LA Galaxy, so can't wait to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sporting Galaxy, Sporting LA Galaxy, is that what you said? Yeah, maybe signs for Inter Miami. Miami. <laughs> hello, hello, David Beckham. <laughs> but the headline will just be Ronaldo joins Inter. Very small text parentheses, Miami. So um, before we cover this weekend's big games in the NFL, and even actually college football is a pretty good week for college football, probably arguably a better college football week than NFL when you look at the schedule. I have one little trivia fact for you. you I, I like to push your push your trivia a little bit this one is an mlb one so we don't talk about baseball much but uh in matchup a few days ago between the um padres and the phillies austin nola faced his brother aaron nola in a a pitcher facing his brother at bat how many times in the postseason has a pitcher pitched to his brother in the postseason. Wow. It cannot be that many times. It obvi- I would say it's not the first based on the fact that you're asking me the question. So I'll say three times. It is the first time. Oh, damn. Ever. <laughs> I had to ask that because now if I, you know, I got to get you off your game a little bit so that <laughs> you think I could ask something that was the first time. So I purposely asked that. It was the first time ever in postseason baseball history that a brother has pitched to a brother. It's only the sixth time that a brother has faced a brother in the postseason, not like at bat, but that brothers have played against each other on, on separate teams, teams in yeah. the postseason. Yeah, so pretty rare that brothers actually even play against each other in general in the postseason. So, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, I I feel like you set me up with that question. I feel like you're Manchester United in this scenario. I'm Cristiano Ronaldo. Are you walking out? Is that it? You've misused me. You've taken off your headphones. (laughs) There he goes. (laughs) (laughs) You've publicly embarrassed me. This is not what I expected from this this relationship. Now, you've you've mentioned one odd statistic. Uh, I'll. 
I'll see your odd statistic and I'll raise you an odd statistic. Today, we have, and then this, this today being Scorgami, Thursday, <laughs> October twentieth, we have, we have the Saints playing the Cardinals in the NFL. We have the Yankees playing the Astros in the Major League Baseball playoffs. There are two NBA games, and there are twelve NHL games. It is incredibly rare for there to be all four U.S. major sports playing games on the same day. How many times do you think that has happened in history? In history. I'll go with eight times. You went way too low. It's 27. It's not at quite. Oh, you got me. (laughs) It's not that rare. (laughs) It's pretty rare. Yeah, that is pretty rare. I mean, you have to go back to what league was started the latest, which was probably hockey out of the major sports leagues. Yeah, so and then it would be interesting too in terms like of 40 years. Yeah, how they define then like NBA, you know, like the merger of leagues, like NFL, like how yeah. what what terms are we using? Hmm. Interesting though. And you know what? I don't know how much I'll watch on Thursday. <laughs> One of our friends did message and say that the tickets are under $40 for the Cardinals game. But even that low price does not entice me for the two and a half hour drive up to the outskirts of Phoenix to watch a what I anticipate a slightly boring game. <laughs> you could try and spin it the other way, right? Sooner or later, these dull Thursday night football games have to end. So or maybe, they just cancel Thursday night football. Maybe we're well, they've done the opposite, right? We've, they've just signed a deal where next year we're going to have Friday night football for the first time in the NFL it. because on Black Friday, Amazon Prime will be showing a uh, you know a Black Friday NFL game. Are there going to be special deals throughout that game? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You can you can like buy a quarterback at a discount yeah. price if two touchdowns are scored in the first quarter the Dyson vacuum will be an extra 10% off on Amazon that day. As a final note, before we then move on to our NFL discussions, I have one other random topic for you, which is, I guess we, we should address a little bit of news, which I doubt will come to anything, but it's, it is worth saying that a formal request has been made to the FIFA, FIFA council and FIFA president by a, a number of notable Iranian uh, professional athletes, both male and female professional athletes, requesting that uh, the Iranian Football Federation be immediately suspended, which would effectively ban Iran from taking place from taking part in this year's World Cup. Um, the reason why they're asking for this is because of the fact that women in Iran are basically not allowed to attend football matches unless it's sort of quite select circumstances and that is in breach of uh, FIFA's principles uh, which is that you're not allowed to discriminate or not include certain parts of your population in their active participation in the sport so I doubt that that will develop into anything but maybe it's worth just mentioning it in case it does but the final thing I know you're a big you know you, you've got your schedule down you know, pretty well. You've got your gym sessions planned out. You've got a number of different activities that you'd like to do. Do you think you could match Charlie Woods, the son of Tiger Woods, his 13-year-old son? Did you see his schedule that came out, his daily schedule? Oh, I have not. This, uh, this 
this just already sounds depressing. So, <laughs> just the way you've led up to this makes me feel bad for this kid already. Let me start by saying I've only got his schedule up until 11.45 in the morning. So. Oh, jeez. His day starts at 5 a.m. He wakes up. Nope, I'm out. From 5.30 to 6.30, he lifts weights. From I'm not a morning lifter, so I'm from, definitely out. From 6.45 to 8.45, he plays nine holes of golf. 6.45 to 8.45, yeah. From 9 till 9.30, he eats breakfast. That's a long time for breakfast. Oh, no, actually, I say, sorry, 11.45, it's 11.45 at night. That's when he goes okay. to bed. And I, I, in the lack of the 24 Five hours. hours of sleep he's getting, this kid? Five hours and 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't forget those 15. He needs them. I mean, I, like, honestly, when you're only getting five hours, an extra 15 is probably pretty important. Yeah. From 9.45 to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he plays a, a full round of golf. So on top of the nine holes he's already played, he plays an additional okay. 18. No and school two, so far. No, no I guess these are, these are non-school days, I suppose. No, I'm sure they are school days. <laughs> Who gives a shit about school? From 2.30 to 3.30, he does putting drills. From 3.45 to 4, 4 o'clock, he treats himself to some lunch. From, from 4 till 5, he goes on the range. Oh, my God. From 5.15 to 7, he plays another nine holes of golf. So that takes his total up to 36, 36 holes of golf. 36 holes. Yeah. He's 13 years old. He's 13 years old. From 7 till 8, he does chipping drills. From 9 till 10, he does yoga. Oh, it's late for yoga. Yeah. I like to do all my yoga before 7 p.m. at the latest. Now, considering he gives himself 15 minutes for lunch, he does not eat dinner, but he gives himself 15 minutes from 11.15 to 11.30 to have a protein shake. So... He really wow, savors that shake. you're putting a lot of effort, or you're putting a lot of effort into making it. <laughs> no, because actually there's an unaccounted for from 10 to 10.15, there's nothing on this schedule. So maybe either. That must be know. dinner. Yeah. He's eating dinner at 10 o'clock. 10.45 to 11.30, he watches swing film, and then he goes to bed. Swing film, is that a new show on Netflix? or? <laughs> That's, yeah. But I mean, incredible schedule. For anyone, but especially for a 13-year-old. See, now here's where it gets really tough is I bet you when you ask him, he will say, no, I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. This is what I want to do. I want to be the best, and this is what it takes to be the best. At the same time, he does not understand, I don't think, what like a normal enjoyment of a day is. And... Like he can't, it's tough because even if he says that's what he wants, I don't think that's he true knows nothing because else. he doesn't know yeah. what, what like a normal life is at some point. And then what's really sad is then you see so many athletes that are great athletes that didn't do this and had a normal childhood and had a fun childhood and had a somewhat normal life growing I, up. Right. I, and that's the really sad part is Five years down the road from now, he might be the 150th best golfer playing on the se- a second-rate live golf tour. He's not super highly ranked currently, but it's a little bit misleading because most of the people he's competing against now are significantly older than him. 
So it's difficult to read into exactly how good he is at this stage because at 13, he's playing in tournaments against 15 and 16 year olds. And so obviously you would expect them to be beating him, even if talent wise and technique wise, he's better. But yeah, I do agree with you. I mean, I think back on my own childhood, I probably would have loved something like that if that was a sport that I enjoyed playing. Like that sounds kind of amazing. You know, if that was just, and you have to assume that obviously all the facilities he has access to are incredible. I'm sure everyone's treating him really nicely. You know, you kind of have to factor that in because it's it's easy to make maybe some comparisons a little bit to Andre Agassi's dad and the fact that he made him, you know, really. I mean, train. isn't it easy to make comparisons to Tiger Woods's dad? It's very similar to what Tiger Woods went through as a child. Where and he Tiger was Woods playing, loved his dad. You know, over 18 holes at age six, you know, like, but, I mean, yeah, but Tiger Woods, nothing, he's never had any issues as an adult. Everything worked out for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Maybe no, if you watched more Disney Channel as a kid growing up, <laughs> it would have been a little more wholesome. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult. And again, yes, that might, that's probably not every day. He's going to school sometimes, you know, that is a, I mean, a, do, a headline. Do you know that for sure? He's going to school. No. <laughs> Does he need to go to school? To be completely honest, well, no, because his dad's a billionaire. So I mean, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't need to do anything. No, but I mean, and and the other thing that when I did, when when you read off the schedule that pops out to me is how incredibly lucky and privileged he is that it only takes him, for instance, fifteen minutes to go from probably a personal massive weight room directly onto hole one to start his nine holes to come off of that, go to probably like a professionally chef cooked meal waiting for him as he steps off of hole nine or hole 18, you know, like for me to have to do that, I would have to put in 45 minutes driving in traffic in my Toyota Camry to get to restaurant, you know, like the, the privilege that's built in there is insane. But not even his privilege, Tiger Woods is privilege, right? Because it's a lot of the responsibility for a lot of what would go into that normally for a 13-year-old would fall on the parents. Yes. And it just wouldn't be, you know, preparing all those meals, doing all that. Like you have a a mother or a father, you know, trying to do all of that. And Tiger Woods can just go, no, it's fine. The personal chef will have your meal ready, your breakfast ready for you at the right time. Your lunch ready for your protein shake will be ready for you. Like I'm not having to deal. Like this is not adding to my workload. Now, I'm sure he's taking an active role in a lot of this because he's Tiger Woods and his son wants to play golf. But, you know, it doesn't, aside from that, it's not as if he's taking on extra responsibility to try and manage that lifestyle. It's, you know, he has people who he can get to do that. So, yeah, it's a privilege for both of them. Yeah. And I guess, you know, we can wrap up on the on football. We don't want to take too long because I'm sure our listeners want to get into the interview. But like I said, I think... This week is a day that you might enjoy watching Saturday football more than Sunday football if you're a fan of, you know, potential big matchups. And I'll just run through a few of the college football ones and then we can go into the NFL. But college football, you have number nine UCLA Bruins who are undefeated for the first time in a very long time um, at this level of the season versus Oregon, which is a big test for them to see if this undefeated UCLA Bruins team is actually any good. Um, so that's a pretty big matchup. And then the other really big one, I think too, is you have undefeated Syracuse, who's having kind of like a, like a crazy season right now in terms of them not being a football 
powerhouse, more of the basketball powerhouse, and they're playing number five Clemson. So that's going to be a really true test to see if, again, this undefeated season is just an easier schedule and some luck, or if they're the real deal and can handle Clemson. And then you also have Alabama trying to rebound against Mississippi State, who's decent this season. Um, and then I think the other matchup is uh, TCU, who I believe is also undefeated, playing against Kansas State, who's a decent team this year. So interesting that you have a lot of these teams that are still undefeated that people don't believe in. And this is going to be the first true test for a good amount of them. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Yeah. And, and as you say there, this is a pretty disappointing slate of NFL games. And I mean, the question we've we discussed rare occurrences in the world of American sports. When's the last time that you could have made a legitimate argument that the New York Giants playing the Jacksonville Jaguars is the best game on a on an NFL Sunday? <laughs> Sadly, I don't think I could make that argument today. It's not but far it's off. Kind though. of close. It's not yeah, far. It's, it's it's a top five game. <laughs> it's you're, like I agree. I mean, to me, the standout game, not with the Niners Nation perspective, but the standout game is the Chiefs against the 49ers. That just does seem like the best game. But after that, I mean, it's difficult to pick out any real yeah. star matchups. And, and, uh, and you could kind of spin that Jags-Giants game as being one of the most compelling. Yeah, I, I, mean, I definitely agree. I think the Chiefs-Niners is a big matchup for both teams. You know, Chiefs coming off a loss, Niners trying to stay above 500, a good litmus test for both of them. Uh, I think another big matchup in my eyes is the Chargers going against Seahawks, who are three and three, I think, to a lot of people's surprise. That's a huge matchup for the Chargers, because if they're going to be the team that people think they were when they started the season, this is a game they need to win. You cannot lose against the Seahawks, whether they're 500 or not. Yeah. If you are going to be a Super Bowl contending team, you cannot lose to the Seattle Seahawks and Geno Smith. So this is a big game for them to really go out and write that ship and get to five and two. And, you know, I think I think at five and two, you'd be OK uh, with that feeling. But I think if you're four and three, I think you have to worry a little bit. No, yeah, I agree. With, if they lose this game, I mean, they're a write off to me in terms of season potential if they lose this one. Because, yes, you're yeah. right. You know, the, the Seahawks have managed to scrape some wins out, but I don't think they're a good team. So if you, if you can't win this one. In, and they're in a division where they just can't afford to lose games like this. But, yeah, I mean, what what, what do you think? I think the Chiefs will beat the Niners. I do as well. It wouldn't stun yeah. me if if the Niners' defense just kind of forced Mahomes into some dumb mistakes and some turnovers. We've seen that from them in the past. And it would also be very much like Jimmy Garoppolo on the back of a disappointing – no, but you know what I mean? Like on the back of a disappointing performance to – suddenly have everyone go, oh, Jimmy G, he's, he's pretty good though, you know? And he does that good job of being good enough in the games people are more likely to watch, whereas bad performances against the likes of the Falcons kind of get forgotten because they people will get to the end of the season and remember. But remember we, when he was pretty good against the Chiefs and that impressive win? Like that's, you know, he's tends to turn up when it kind of matters, but not when it really matters, like the Super Bowl. Yeah, and then... So another interesting matchup, I think, always is the Ravens-Browns, just because of the big rivalry there between Baltimore and Cleveland. Uh, always gets pretty heated on the field. A game Baltimore should win on paper, but also should win according to trends. So I'm sure many people out there don't know uh, 
Blackburn Rovers ha- just broke a streak of win loss, win loss, win loss. That was, I think, eleven matches. Ten. of alternate 10 of this alternate was the 11th losses. When they, they finally okay. broke it yeah they finally broke buck buck the trend well the ravens this season have gone win loss win loss win loss and now are playing the cleveland browns so a good opportunity to pile your money on a meaningless trend that they're going to win this match <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I guess, it, I mean, it, those trends are kind of meaningless. At the same time, I guess they are kind of important because they show inconsistency, right? Which is the thing you see out of it. I guess the, the interesting thing to say, looking ahead in the Ravens schedule, they, I, you expect them to keep the trend going with against the Browns. They then follow that up with a Thursday night football game against the Bucks. They could potential lose. Potential loss. Potential <laughs> loss. And then they play the Saints, which you'd think they'd probably win. So there's a good, there's a decent chance this keeps going for at least another three games. Yep. And the only other one I want to bring up uh, is the Packers, who have now lost to the Giants and the Jets back-to-back and are now playing the two-and-four Commanders. And I think this, in terms of must-win games, this is a must-win game for anyone having any hope that the Packers can do anything this season. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think if they lose this, Aaron Rodgers retires post-game. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that kind of in jest, but it wouldn't actually stun me if just in his post-game press conference he just said, you know what, this season's over and my career is over. Because, yeah, if, if, they, lose, if they lose this one, it's difficult to see how they can salvage their season. Well, I'm pretty sure commanders are without Carson Wentz, right? Does that matter? Does that, does that help them? Does that hurt? You them? asked that Eddie, but who do you think has more touchdown passes this season? Wentz or Rogers? Well, Wentz, but who do you think has more yards thrown? Wentz or Rogers? Wentz. I actually think Wentz is pretty high overall in the yardage, isn't he? Just in, in the overall in the league. Cause he's had a couple, he's of about 80 yards over. Rodgers yeah. and one touchdown over Rodgers. Who do you think has more interceptions, Wentz or Rodgers? Uh, Wentz. Yeah, definitely Wentz. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, look, it's also an important game for the for Washington as well, right? They are coming off one of the more embarrassing stories of the week. I don't know if you saw, but uh, oh, as this is, pop- is just getting ridiculous. That story, <laughs> as is popular in the U.S. for people, they do this fifty fifty raffle. You kind of you buy these raffle tickets. Fifty. Oh, 50%. this isn't the story at all. I I, I oh, thought you were referring. Heard. I thought you were talking about Snyder, the no. owner. No, and no, his you've threats heard, that you've not, you've not heard okay, this 50 50 so no. they they run it gets run during games at you know and and american sports on a consistent basis the idea you buy you buy these tickets 50 percent of the the money goes towards charity and the other 50 percent, the winning raffle ticket gets the prize and the person who won the raffle at the washington commander's last home game for starters a little bit embarrassing the total he won was only fourteen thousand dollars Normally, these 50-50s, the winning sum for the person is in the hundreds of thousands, like between 100 to 250,000 at other teams. I've, I've saw they, they did comparisons. It is very, okay. it is very I consistent. Say, I've, I've been to a few Cardinals game where I've been suckered into getting the 50-50 and it wasn't to win 100,000. It doesn't surprise me that the Cardinals are also struggling to get those higher numbers. <laughs> but within the NFL, it is pretty consistent that you can see. And supposedly the number, the place where the numbers are the biggest are Canadian NHL teams. 
not only because of the passion of the fans, but because they also open up the sale of the 50-50 tickets beforehand. Like you don't have to be in stadium to buy them. And so over the course of the week, people buy the raffle tickets. So it turns into a real thing. The prize sums can be huge. But anyway, this guy won the $14,000, went to cash his check, and the check bounced. <laughs> That's awesome. So the Washington commanders uh, have said that it's a mistake on the part of the bank. They're trying to figure out exactly what it is that went on. But uh, he kind of went public. He put it on social media that he cashed this check and it had bounced. So they Oh, he better look out because I'm sure Dan Snyder's got dirt on him and he'll expose <laughs> him for what he is. <laughs> so, yeah, he now has to sort out getting his $14,000 in some other way from the Washington commanders. Yeah. But maybe on that note, talking about sports and money. Sports gambling. Yeah. We can (laughs) legal. Yes. We can move on to our our interview with uh, Sean Patrick Griffin and the discussion about the NBA betting scandal. Yeah, let's do it. Well, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We are now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Sean Patrick Griffin. He's a professor of criminal justice at the Citadel and also a best-selling author whose work includes Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen, which, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. That's kind of the reason we have you on because that story has sort of re-entered the media zeitgeist and we'd be interested in speaking to you about what happened and maybe some inaccuracies and how it's now being discussed but yes thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us thanks for having me yeah thanks so much so i guess before we get into the story itself maybe if you could give us a little bit of your own background and sort of how that then sort of led you to cover the story in the detail that you ultimately did sure my background is that uh, my main research areas are organized crime and white collar crime. I do a little work on policing. I'm a former Philadelphia police officer and I come from a cop family. So that's always been a natural, but it's not as sexy as the organized crime and white collar crime stuff. So I was, uh, and I'm not a huge sports fan, but obviously I was aware of the scandal. And ironically, I was promoting my last book in the media, which was very popular in Philadelphia. And somebody saw me on television, contacted me and said, hey, are you going to do anything on this NBA betting scandal story? Well, first of all, I'm not an NBA fan, so I only knew a cursory view of the story, just pretty much what was covered on ESPN or whatever. I didn't really hurt. They were obviously in the local papers in Philadelphia. And I flippantly said, no, what is there to do? I mean, it's national story. The people have already been arrested, going through the process, you know. And he said, I think you'd benefit from speaking to the professional gamblers. That had never occurred to me. Uh, I don't know if you can go back to the original coverage. There was no mention of professional gamblers. Yeah, the three co-conspirators were mentioned, Tim Donaghy, the referee, Tommy Martino, his best friend, and Martino's friend, Jimmy Batista. But it was never discussed as a professional gambling story. And because my background is in organized crime, we routinely talk about gambling and sports gambling, but it's local level, small scale sports, sports gambling. To my knowledge, no one had ever done a deep dive into the the big world of sports gambling, meaning people who bet for a living, bet millions of dollars every day, claim it on their taxes, bet mostly offshore. And I especially figured, because I also do a lot on narcotics and money laundering and tax evasion. And I thought, well, 
at a minimum, I can figure out if there's something to, something to learn and discuss about how all that money is bet offshore and brought back into the United States. That had not been done. So anyway, I, I schedule a meeting with Jimmy Batista, one of the three co-conspirators who was a professional gambler. And I really do enter that meeting not really thinking much about this. I'm just humoring the possibility and I'm more focused on the organized crime stuff and the drug and the, uh, the racketeering aspect. Well, meanwhile, we weren't even together 20 minutes or half of an hour and I realized how much the media had gotten the story wrong. Don't forget, this is back in 08, 09. So when, when, when I start getting into today in 2022, all the problems I have with the media, that's really where all that started because it wasn't just what they got wrong. It was why they got it wrong. And that's why I was so upset. So anyway, I realized, holy smokes, there's a huge story here that no one has ever discussed. And I immediately got involved in the project. And then I spent three years traveling all over the place, getting access to all the people that you would need to do this story. And what I mean by that is when I was writing Game in the Game, yeah, sure, I was the first person to get a crack at Batista. But I always say this, if the book was simply Batista talking into a recorder, that book would have taken six weeks. It wouldn't have taken me three years and thousands of dollars <laughs> traveling all over the place, getting the documents, because what I wound up doing, I wound up interviewing as many people in the FBI as I could. By the way, not just in the Brooklyn office that, had, that headed the investigation, Philly, Las Vegas, California, wherever the investigation went, I tracked what people were learning as, as much as at least they would tell me. And then, I, of course, I interviewed all the U.S. attorney's officials I could. I interviewed all of Batista's colleagues. And importantly, I interviewed his rivals, some of whom hate him with a burning passion. And, and then I also interviewed sportsbook managers in Las Vegas and offshore. I really wanted to get a feel, not just of the NBA betting scandal, but how something like this could happen. Could it happen again? What are the mechanisms in place at the time to stop something like this? Could it have been flagged? All those sorts of things. And that's why if people read Game in the Game, they realize the first one third or roughly one half of the book is about that world and Batista to understand when you get to the second half of the book or whatever the number is, I never did the math, two thirds of the book on the NBA betting scandal, you're ready for that world and you can see how all the money moved and why it was so important that certain things happened. So for people to discount the book as, oh, that's just the word of Jimmy Batista, they, they've clearly never read the book because it's a million things other than that. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And it, yeah, it's true to approach it from that angle is different from, certainly I remember kind of living through it in the moment and how it was discussed. And as you said, it was just very different and that those were, never became a factor. I guess, you know, a sizable portion of our listeners probably under the age of 25 and it and a decent percentage of them live outside the U.S. And, and not NBA fans, would it be possible for you to just give us the kind of beginner's guide overview to the scandal itself, the sort of time period in which it ran and, and exactly what transpired, you know, during this sort of the scandal? Sure. The scandal begins at least in 2003. I say that because that's only what Tim Donaghy admits to. Uh, there, there is speculation it began before then, but for, for simplicity's sake, it begins in 03. In 2003, at that point in time, Tim Donaghy is, an, is a nine-year NBA referee. He starts betting on games he's officiating in 2003. 
He bets with a friend of his, a person named Jack and Cannon, who was an insurance salesman. He might still be for all I know, but back then he was an insurance salesman, not a mobster, not anything to do with the professional gambling world. Well, Tim Donaghy never knew what was happening when he placed those bets with his buddy, Jack. He didn't know where Jack was calling or who he was talking to to place the bets. Jack was placing his bets with a professional gambler named Pete Ruggieri, who importantly for the sake of our interview today, uh, became a cooperating witness. He's one of the many people, the public for some reason doesn't know cooperated with the government. They only know the three people over and over and over again. There's a whole cast of characters the public doesn't, well, every game of the game will know, but the public doesn't know. Anyway, so Pete cooperates with the FBI uh, and outlines uh, his involvement. Well, because Pete's a professional gambler, and I'll, I'll do this very briefly, I just got done saying game of the game is a lot about professional sports gambling. The way they make their money, big money, is that they manipulate betting lines. It's no different than the stock market. If you can manipulate the stock market to get a certain edge and profit, people do it all the time, day trading, whatever. Well, they, because it's offshore, this is, it's not regulated. So you can do this a lot and you're not, there's nothing that's gonna happen to you. It's an illegal market in the first place. So it's not like you're gonna get arrested for it. So they manipulate betting lines all the time. And they were betting as much money as they could whenever Jack would place the bet on Kincannon, uh, on Donaghy's games. And importantly for your audience to know, there was no grand conspiracy about this. The gamblers simply knew that Jack Kincannon used to bet just like everybody else. He bet a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks on an NBA game and he'd lose just like everyone else. But starting in 03, he starts betting $5,000 on certain NBA games and those games are winning like crazy. And so they did a quick research to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the theme of these games? And they were games officiated by Donaghy. And they knew that Donaghy was friends with Kincannon. So, so they start real, copying the, they simply copy the bets okay. on Tim Donaghy's games. So I, I just wanted to, so then he's betting, I was going to say, I think you're going to say it anyway, but so he's betting like 5,000 and then the professional gambler, they're making their money because they're seeing this and putting almost like millions on it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They would, by the way, they, you'll, you'll see when we get to the 06, 07 season, they're betting two to 3 million a game, but, but there's a reason they can't do that early on when they're on, when they're waiting for Jack and Cannon to place his bets, they have no control. If that bet is going to come in hours before a game, the morning of a game. So the duration of time for them to manipulate the sports, the worldwide sports betting market is tight. The, the, the sociology of the betting scandal actually changes in December of 06, where they're going to start getting the picks a day before, which is going to allow them to go crazy manipulating betting lines around the world. And, and so when anyways, you say, good. sorry not to interrupt. And when you say manipulating then for our listeners, they are placing, they're trying to, they're trying to sort of move the market by placing an early bet in one direction with the intention yes. of betting in the other direction later on to sort of move yes. the, move the line and then take the opposite action. Exactly. Yeah. In the, in the trade, they're called head fakes, where they can bet strategically. And because the sports books either know who they are when they're betting, or because they just see there's that much money that's being placed on a certain side of a bet. So for instance, and I know your audience don't, by the way, I'm not a gambler. And before I took on this project, I, I didn't know all this the way I'm describing it. So for the people who are confused, that's not, you're not, un, it's not unusual. But if, if a particular team is favored by three points, and for whatever reason, these gamblers want that number to move to being favored by six points. They can bet strategically to get that number there. And what they'll do though, they'll only spend tens of thousands 
or a hundred or two hundred thousand on one side of the bet at minus three, and once they get get it to minus six, they're now going to bet a million, two million, three million on the other side of the game. <laughs> that's what they do, and that's why for the if for your sports fans who do listen to your podcast, if they ever listen, this happens all the time. If they're listening to a sports radio show and they say, "Oh, the betting line is telling me something." Just ignore whatever that host is telling you because you, they don't know what that line is telling you. You don't know if okay. somebody's manipulating it. I actually used to sit with the pro gamblers and they would say, Sean, watch this. And they would manipulate lines knowing that some of their buddies were following those particular sports books and they would text them. Gotcha. Because they'd see them placing the bets and it was all they were just playing games with each other. And meanwhile, you got sports radio hosts saying, oh, yeah, no, we know what the line. You don't know what the lines are saying. You don't know what these guys are doing. Yeah, that is that is constantly mentioned, you know, sort of sports gambling is such a prevalent topic now within the sports industry, particularly in the US, where it's almost impossible to sort of see coverage of a game without it being viewed from the perspective of a gambler. And it is constantly over the course of this week, the line has moved X number of points, the the sharps or the, the you know, are coming in one way or the other. It is always mentioned. Yes, yes. So anyway, getting back, I'll finish your answer. So starting in the 0304 season, Donaghy starts betting on his own games, and the pro gamblers are simply copying the bets. That happens for 0304, 0405, and 0506. You start the 0607 season. In November of 06, Tommy Martino starts complaining to his best friend, Tommy Martino, uh, that Jack and Cannon isn't paying him any money. According to Donaghy, Jack's betting down Atlantic City. He's losing money, and he can't pay Tim Donaghy on his wins, and he's upset. Tammy Martino says, well, hey, obviously I'm friends with Jimmy Batista. Maybe we can arrange something here. So they set up a fateful meeting at the Philadelphia International Marriott on December 12, 2006. And this is where the conspiracy that everyone has now known uh, comes to light. The three, the three friends, they all knew each other from high school. They all went to Cardinal Higher High School outside of Philly. And they decide that they're going to gamble together. And as I said a moment ago, this is where the sociology of the scandal changes, though, because Batista says, hey, look, if I'm going to do this, you've got to get those picks to me as soon as possible. The way that we make the most money is taking care of that. And so the deal was that Donaghy would get paid $2,000 for every correct pick, and he would not have to pay on losses. Well, the public gets that part right, sort of. That was only true for a handful of games. Very soon, after like three or four games, the pay goes up to $5,000 a game. Many people have said, well, why would Tim Donaghy be willing to do this for only $2,000 a game? Well, the truth was he wasn't doing it for just $2,000 a game. And uh, he, was, he was doing it for $5,000 a game, and he was betting on way more games than the public is aware. That's, that's another part of the issue. So anyway, so the scandal goes on. Now it's with not with Jack and Cannon, but Donaghy's now betting with uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Batista, the pro gambler, they're betting through their mutual friend, Tommy Martino. Donaghy would call Martino. They would use a code on the phone. And then Donaghy, Donaghy would place his bets through Martino with Batista. Well, Batista goes into drug rehab on March 18th, 2007. Unlike what Donaghy tells people, and this is related to all the media lately, the scandal does not end. Pete Ruggieri, the pro gambler I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, he comes back in the picture and he takes over the scheme. And now Donaghy is betting with Ruggieri through Martino. That's all that changed, one pro gambler to another. But Ruggieri, being the smart guy he is, 
he realizes by this time, the sports betting world is aware that Donaghy's games are fixed and everyone is copying the bets. And the way that you make your money, of course, is manipulating the lines. Well, he can no longer control the lines. And he says, look, this thing's out of whack. Way too much money being copied on these games. And so Pete Ruggieri shuts the scheme down in April of 2007. So it doesn't end in March and it's not ended by the NBA or by the FBI. It ends in April of 2007 because a pro gambler shut the scheme down. And I'll bet any of your audience who's paid any attention to the scandal knows none of what I just told you. No, probably. I mean, I certainly, you know, I think the the, the main reporting, right, was that they got caught and, and then it stops. Yes. So, yes. so then how does how do they get caught if they've kind of supposedly stopped betting? How does it all unravel for them? Sure. Soon after they shut it down in April, uh, the FBI in New York, the guys in Brooklyn, in the Eastern District of New York, they're listening to, they're an organized crime squad, and they listen to the Gambino crime family, the, they're, they're the Gambino crime family squad. And so they're listening to wiretaps, and they hear mobsters, actual mobsters, talking about making money on an NBA referee's games. And of course, they do research, and they discover, oh, the referee is Donaghy, and the bets were being placed with Jimmy Batista, and they start their investigation. What the public gets wrong about this, somewhat, the, the, for some reason, on this angle, they're, they're fairly reasonable. And I think it's because the media, for the most part, did not follow this path. It's true that the Gambino crime, crime Squad guys figure this out, but it was never an organized crime case, which is partly why the cases ended the way they did. That's a little in the weeds probably for your podcast. But um, so anyway, they restart researching the case. They're traveling down to Philly in the suburbs of Philly, which is about two hours for those of you who don't know, which was a pain in the neck which was another factor in this prosecution, by the way. And they realized, oh, it's a white collar gambling case in the suburbs of Philly. And what winds up happening is that Tim Donaghy pleads guilty. Tommy Martino pleads guilty. Jimmy Batista uh, originally fights. Both Tommy Martino and Tim Donaghy cooperated with the FBI, like all the other pro gamblers. The only person in this entire scandal who didn't uh, plead guilty, well, pardon me, didn't cooperate, was Batista. And uh, they originally were charging, charging him with fraud. And he was adamant that he was not going to plead guilty to fraud, not because he was going to serve more time in prison, although he would have. His argument was Tim Donaghy was fixing games before I ever got involved in this, and I'm not pleading guilty to that. And so once they said, well, will you plead guilty to illegal gambling? He said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm illegal gambling. I never denied that. So sure, I'll plead guilty to illegal gambling. And then Batista ironically got, he's upset at his sentence. He got 15 months in prison. Well, Donaghy got sent to a federal prison camp, like one of those white collar crime camps that everyone talks about, you know, club fed, it's that nice. Batista went to a no joke federal corrections facility. And his argument is that he thinks that they were trying to flip him, that they were never really into this case because of the NBA betting scandal. He was convinced that they were going after that huge offshore sports betting market. And they were convinced that if they could get him to flip, it wasn't flipping him in the NBA scandal. They wanted them to flip on all those heavy hitting people offshore who are running all these things. Because the other thing too is the feds realize that if these sports books can launder that kind of money onshore every day, well, why couldn't drug dealers and terrorists use these sports books to launder money into the US system? And that's, that's a fair point. So anyway, Batista did like no joke time in a major federal correction facility. And that's, those are the highlights of, of the scandal. Okay, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a fascinating story. I guess, 
you know, we've seen then, you know, you've made mention of how it's currently being reported. There's obviously the, the Netflix untold documentary that's just come out that's covering the topic. There's also the whistleblower podcast that spe- that focused on this story. In some ways, Donaghy gets sort of portrayed almost as a sort of unfortunate victim kind of getting caught up in a scandal. And I can see how you can tell it that way in the sense that it might have gotten out of control in terms of what he was originally doing. And then suddenly he's getting involved with people who maybe, you know, had were operating on a level that he wasn't prepared for. Is there any truth to that sort of how, how aware was he of what was going on, what he was getting into? Well, first of all, I, I totally agree with your characterization of the way he is portrayed. Uh, in many cases, he is portrayed as a victim, even in the Untold documentary and in the Whistleblower podcast you mentioned. He says all the time, and no one questions him on it, he says all the time that he was an extortion victim. He has said that ever since 2009. He's, the media loves him, and he always says he was extorted by the mob. And there, not only was no one charged with extortion, right? You could do that. No one was charged with extortion. Uh, but Tommy Martino, his best friend, who also cooperated with the authorities, uh, has not only said that it's BS, he actually says on the record that Donaghy has been lying about that. And the reason that he lies about it publicly is because that's what he told the FBI back in 2007, what he was cooperating, and he can't go back on it. And of course, I write all about this in Gaming the Game. That was part of the reason I got involved in the case. I thought, well, what is the, what is the role, if any, of organized crime? There was no organized crime. The, the organized crime involvement, the reason the feds heard that the wiretap was because Batista, the way pro gamblers work is, when you're moving that kind of money, you can't bet $3 million at one casino or one offshore sports book. You have to launch, you know, spread that out all over the place. And they're called outs. Batista had dozens of outs. Well, one of his outs was a Jewish bookmaker up in New York. Well, he, of course, had no idea where just just like just like Donaghy had no idea what was happening when Kincannon placed his bets. Well, Batista's not monitoring where that Jewish bookmaker gets his money or plays. That's how that all happened. But regardless, um, Donaghy has always painted himself as a victim and the media routinely um, agree. The media just lets him say that unchecked. And, and by the way, the reason I get upset, the whistleblower podcast and especially untold, they literally had access to everything I'm describing. But importantly, they had Martino interviewed on both of those things, the podcast and Untold, and they had Phil Scala, the supervisor special agent for the FBI on both of these things. And they, you, so how are you going to cut from Tim Donaghy saying he was extorted and then cut to the FBI guy? Why? He's there. Ask him. He says he was an extortion victim. Why wasn't anyone in this case charged with extortion? If you listen to Donaghy's interviews back in 08 and 09, he alleged that Tommy Martino was a Gambino crime family member who extorted him. It was all BS, I mean, so, but no one calls them on it. So, and and so, so, sorry, Frank, but ahead, why do you think they do that? Is that because it's a more sort of compelling, eye-catching story if you play up the idea of extortion and the mafia, the mob being involved in it? Is, is that the only reason you think that sort of media are choosing to spin the story in that way? I can understand why, the, why Donaghy might, but sure. from the media perspective, why is that the only reason? Yes. I, that's that's what I believe. Well, I can tell you this. I was interviewed for both of these projects. That's typically what happens. They know that I wrote Game in the Game and that I get interviewed. But it's so obvious what they're doing. They come into these projects with a predetermined narrative and they don't doesn't matter what the evidence says. And in the Whistleblower podcast, if people go back and look, I actually have 
on, on my website, by the way, I literally have an entire analysis of the whistleblower podcast with all the things that are wrong with it and why and all the links to the evidence that blows it up. Same thing with the untold documentary. The, it, there's nothing remarkable about this if you just check the darn record. Well, whistleblower actually promoted the podcast with the mob angle. The, the logo of the podcast was mafia backed scandal. It, none of that's true. It was not backed by the mob and the mob had nothing to do with this. Literally nothing to do with this. These guys were doing this. They were moving all this kind of money from 03 to 06 without any involvement of organized crime. And by chance in 06, November, December, actually, I would, I would actually argue it's probably January, where they, they catch wind of it and start copying the bets. Well, by that point, everybody under the sun is copying the bets. But if an insurance salesman or a roofer is copying the bets, that doesn't go on a logo of a podcast. But because it's the mob, they go, aha, we got it. And people fall for it. They love, people just love the sensational nonsense. And it's just not, look, I research organized crime for a living. That's why I took on the project. I would love to write stuff like that, but it's just not, in this case, it's not true. So he always paints himself as a victim. And in most cases, the media either is ignorant, but in the untold situation and the whistleblower podcast, they both know they made a conscious decision. That's why I keep, if people follow my Twitter, I constantly say this, these things are purposeful manipulations of documented history because they do know better. This isn't 2007 or eight where they could have said, oh, well, it was a hot story. We're rushing to be first. That's not what's happening here. They know what they're doing and they're choosing a narrative because they find it either as good for clicks, views, ratings, or whatever. They're choosing to lie to the public and it's just outrageous. So, so the other way I think he kind of portrays himself as a victim, you know, at least in the, in the Netflix documentary that they kind of bring to light is that he's saying he's just part of a bigger problem in the NBA that the, the NBA itself is almost fixing its own games by wanting these people to win and these teams to win and go to game sevens. And that the NBA played a role in the whole way that this, not unfolded, but the way it kind of ended and, and the way they tied up the loose knots. Is there any truth to that? Or is that to him again, just kind of playing the victim card and trying to get himself off of the front page and put the NBA on the front page? Right. That's a great question. Uh, I'll answer it in two parts. The first part is with regard to him deflecting and saying that, oh, no, no, I, I, there were, everyone else was doing this too. It's that there's a complicated answer to that because don't forget, he denies he fixed games. His argument was that he was simply betting, knowing the tendencies of a refereeing crew or of what the NBA was dictating. Not only is there no evidence of that, there's evidence to the contrary, because his original argument, now this is again, for your audience who has not been paying attention to the story, his story has changed multiple times in consequential ways going back to 07. His original argument was that he would bet as often on games he didn't officiate as on those he did because his argument was he was using inside information. And if that were true, of course, well, then it wouldn't matter if you were officiating. That was a way of saying, look, I, if I was fixing games, why would I be able to bet so successfully? Well, that didn't happen. The professional gamblers, all the conspirators, all agree that the bets were exclusively on Donaghy's games. And the only reason the pro gamblers caught on to this in the first place back in 03 was because the bets on Donaghy's games were the ones that were winning. So. There's no evidence that inside information and his knowledge of tendencies or whatever, and again, if people read Game in the Game, the entire appendix is nothing but a blizzard of data. 
it's the betting lines for the NBA seasons, 03 to 06, but especially the 06, 07 season when Batista gets involved, because then they can really manipulate the lines because they're getting the information earlier, they're getting picks earlier. And it's overwhelming. And I also had access to Batista's betting records. And so there's no zero evidence at all that it's not, to me, it's obvious. It's just another self-serving Donnie. Everything Donnie says minimizes his responsibility, deflects to somebody else or something else, and or makes him a victim. I literally have an entire page on my website devoted to this. I, I studied his whole media manipulation going back to 09. And he does the same thing in every interview. And unfortunately, everyone loves this story. It's just compelling. And wow, that's fascinating. And I've become this like troll who's saying, a, a guy, sorry, that's not really what happened. And uh, what are you going to do? So that's the first part. But the second part yeah. to your question about the end of the scandal, don't forget, the scandal ends because of Pete Ruggieri. The media has now taken that to, oh, no, no, the FBI shut it down. And they were going to do more. But the NBA shut that down. Here again, that's complicated. Well, obviously, the FBI didn't shut the scandal down. But did the NBA shut the uh, investigation down? I have no evidence of that. That's new, by the way. I interviewed all these people in, back in 08, 09, and 2010 when I was doing research for Game of the Game, including Phil Scala. I've never heard this conspiracy theory ever until the last couple of years. And the idea that the NBA would leak the, the story to shut it down. Yeah, I can't disprove that. I have no way of disproving that. But I want to say something about the investigation. The way the media, and I say the media, the way the untold story presents this as though they were going to wire Tim Donaghy up. Well, the question that they didn't ask or, or they asked it and they didn't like the answer should have been to Phil Scala. Okay, let's say that you wire Tim Donaghy and it doesn't get shut down. What exactly were you expecting to discover? Notice that no one talking about this has asked that question or thought that because they're all assuming what's being talked about is other referees fixing games. No one believes that, including Scala. That's not what's being alleged. Early on in the investigation, the feds bought Donaghy's BS. He was the first person to cooperate. That's why I wound up speaking to all those different FBI field offices. I went to everywhere that I could find that people were saying, oh, yeah, just, you know, we tracked down some of the stuff out here. And if you go back and look at the charging documents, when Donaghy's plea arrangement was, was resolved, one of the comments the federal prosecutor said was all the information that Donaghy provided wasn't true, wasn't substantive. And one FBI agent told me I, that he wishes the taxpayers knew how much money they spent traveling around tracking down all these ridiculous conspiracy theories that all serve to deflect away from Donaghy. And so th there's no evidence other, other referees were doing it. It's another Donaghy ploy to say, oh, yeah, well, I'm just one of many. But that, that, that's not true. And I guess that's another compelling story, right? Because sports fans in general can be, you know, buy into the conspiracies of officials are fixing games like either if you've bet on a game and you feel a hard done by by a call or you're a fan of a team and you look back at something like it plays into a lot of tendencies that fans have that there is some larger conspiracy and that officials are out to get their team or a particular mm -hmm. player in terms of then the the actual details as to how he was fixing the games themselves was that through because it, I, I guess again from most outsiders perspectives you would have thought that would have been noticed fairly quickly but is that through i mean the nature of the nba is you have all of these sort of ticky tack fouls that you could call or you couldn't call mm -hmm. is that how he's trying to influence them by sort of not being 
officially incorrect in what he's enforcing, but just enforcing it in a way that other NBA officials would not have? Yes. If you listen to Tim Donaghy, especially years ago when he was on his media tour back in 2009, again, I have this on my website too. He says over and over again, I was not making incorrect calls in these games. Well, no one's alleging that. That's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a straw man argument. The argument is that he was calling calls that other referees don't call, and he was calling them a lot and strategically to affect the games. The pro gamblers always said that he was doing this mostly early in the games. He wanted to set the circumstances for because the argument was, if you're the FBI and you've got FBI agents looking at game tape, what, what could they possibly look at? It's not their fault. Um, besides, they're looking for wrong calls and they're looking late in the games. Well, if the games are being fixed early in the game by making the correct calls, well, they're not going to get flagged. And the thing is, Donaghy was always ranked one of the highest. He was the top three when it came to the NBA audits, the referees. And he was always a really well-regarded NBA referee when it came to technically correct calls. And he also was known for calling a lot of calls. So if that's how you're going to fix a game, I don't know how you could detect that. And that's why I, 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 always, I always caution people. People always want to go back and look at Donaghy's games to see how he was doing it. I don't even know if that's possible. Okay. That's very interesting. How efficient was he then in fixing them? Like what percentage of games, you know, what was the win rate in terms of his ability to actually determine the outcome of a game that he was sort of trying to fix? Yeah. Pro gamblers say it was 78%. Okay. So pretty efficient. Which, which by the way, for, for the people who don't gamble in your audience, you have to understand these professional gamblers, if they win 52, 53% of the time, they're ecstatic. So when you get a number that big, you know, something's going on there. <laughs> and so, so I guess oh, just kind of with, with the way you're saying he's kind of potentially could be fixing the games. The, the other thing that's portrayed in the untold documentary is that one of his friends who is also an official there was a Got lot Foster. of communicate. Yeah. There's a lot of communication between them and, and maybe there was, maybe there wasn't what, what, what do you think about that scenario? Was, mm -hmm. was he also getting him involved or, or is that just kind of random and it happened to be that they were just friends who talked a lot? Well, first of all, if you look at the call logs, I have a copy of the call logs too. It is very odd there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I forget the number. I used to know the number by heart years ago. I, I think it's 137. Uh, calls and they're short too. They're a minute, two minute. They're it's it's very odd, and they are during game days and things like that. Obviously, Scott Foster was interviewed, not by me, but by the NBA and the FBI, and uh, and Donaghy and um, and Foster both say that no, we were just good friends. We spoke all the time, and the only thing that Foster said was, well, maybe he was priming the pump. Maybe he was trying to get inside information from me to help him with his bets. Uh, Batista has always believed that what was happening was that Foster was betting on Donaghy's games. And one of the reasons that Batista has always been upset at the FBI investigation and especially at the NBA investigation is that to his knowledge, no one ever said, okay, well, who was Scott Foster calling when he got off the phone with Donaghy? Batista's always said, I'd love to see, I'd love to see phone logs of Scott Foster's phones after he got off the phone with Donaghy. Because he always thinks he was just copying the bets. And that's the thing. When I say that, people say, oh, what are you, covering for Foster? Well, look, that would still be bad enough if an NBA referee is betting on another referee's games because he's been told what the outcome is. Well, that's pretty damn bad. But that's a different matter than him also fixing games, which is what other people keep wanting to say. 
I have all that data. He, there's no evidence he was fixing games. And in fact, Batista and the pro gamblers did take a few bets on Foster's games that Donaghy gave them. And they were losers. And they yelled at Donaghy and said, don't give us any more, any more of those picks. So I suppose it was, a, you know, from the way you've sort of described the story, it was inevitable that the pro gamblers would become involved to a heavy sort of degree at some point, just from the, tr- the betting trends. But had that not happened, and I guess this is very speculative, but had that not happened, is there any way they get caught? No. And by the way, it's even, it isn't even the pro gamblers that were the problem. Batista was the problem. He actually talks about this when I interviewed him from Game in the Game. Uh, by the, the reason, as I said earlier, he went into drug rehab in March of 07. And he, part of the reason he was addicted to prescription pills is because he was working too much. He was working... His job in the underworld of sports gambling was that he was the person to get you the bets. So he, d- he doesn't handicap. He can't handicap a game better than you or me. But if you need to get big money down on the game, he's the guy to call because he knows all those people. Well, there's a value in that if you're in the big time sports betting world. Well, a bunch of pro gamblers were using him and he should have just worked for one of them. He chose to work for like four of them and his life was going crazy. Well, because of that, he was making all sorts of ridiculous decisions that had he not been hooked on prescription pills, or perhaps if Pete Ruggieri was the one in charge the whole time, maybe it doesn't get out of control, and maybe it's happening today as we speak. There was no, This was never going to get detected. Okay. And I guess we can talk about that because I'm interested in, in looking at you know what protocols there are in place to prevent similar scandals in the <laughs> NBA and other leagues now. But then sure. before we get to that, in, you know, this is one of the biggest scandals to have hit American sports or even potentially global sports this century. The NBA, NBA has done a very good job of not having it stick to them as a, as a PR scandal. You know, mm-hmm. it's mostly forgotten, even if it is kind of being discussed. We've, we've already mentioned sort of how different people involved in the story have maybe influenced the narrative because of their own interests. How active a role do you think the NBA has played in trying to distance themselves in a sense, have this be one rogue referee who got tied up with some bad people and that's it, we've solved the problem. Right. Well, first of all, that is what happened though. It is one rogue referee. So in fairness to them, that part's accurate. Now, when I was doing Game in the Game, I asked to interview a handful of people in the NBA. They said no. I tried interviewing people in the NBA Referees Association, which is just a distinct organization. And they said, no, when Game in the Game came out, David Stern, then the commissioner, was asked at the All-Star Game about Game in the Game and said, we're, we're aware of it. We'll look into it. And of course, he never said a word about it. He was smart. I just consider that good business. I don't think it's hustling. I mean, why would you, why would you shine a light on this? The only thing they do that's sketchy, in my opinion, they very rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't focus on the fact that Donaghy fixed games. When, when the NBA came out with their study, which was called the Pedowitz study, I interviewed Larry Pedowitz for Game of the Game, they didn't have access to Batista, Martino, or Donaghy, or the FBI agents, or their files. Well, stop right there. What, what could they know if they didn't have access to any of the people or any of the data? Well, they, they concluded that they were unable to determine if Tim Donaghy fixed games, and that they uh, were not going to disagree with the FBI who had not said that he fixed games either. Everyone has taken those two statements and said, oh, the NBA concluded, the FBI concluded that neither of those things happened. The FBI never took a position on whether he fixed games. In fact, 
they actually made him say in his plea agreement that he at least subconsciously fixed games, that there was no way you could have a financial interest in the outcome of the game and not have it affect your own court performance. That's literally in his plea deal. And then the NBA, though, this is why I say it's kind of sketchy. ESPN, the magazine, did a big expose uh, by Scott Eden. I think it was 2019. And uh, I helped Scott with that. And there's a line in there that's wrong. It says that the NBA concluded Donnie didn't fix games. Well, the NBA thought that was so outrageous. They issued a press release and said, we never concluded he didn't fix games. So they want it both ways. They want it to die and not be talked about and not talk about any reforms or anything like that. But they do take the occasion, and David Stern testified before Congress before he passed away when sports legalization was being debated. A senator asked him this, and he said, no, no, we never concluded it in fixed games. So they're, they're open to the possibility I personally believe they know he fixed games. They had, a, they had another internal report that we've never seen, which was produced by a professional gambler. And he did a much deeper dive into the betting data than even I did game in the game for them because he had access to better data. And I, I am fairly confident from what I've been told that it, it showed exactly what I found in game of the game. It's not, you don't even need, need access to the pro gamblers. Just look at the betting lines. It's ridiculous. And, and what's the significance in the distinction between sort of fixing a game and refereeing in a way that influenced the betting lines successfully or influenced the outcome of a game in some more subtle way. Like I think to a lot of people that would maybe appear like sort of meaningless semantics, but what's the actual significance of that distinction? Well, don't forget, I actually argue it is fixing a game. Donaghy's argument is that he he just happened to be told, oh, we're you know we're gonna call we're gonna make calls on Frank tonight. Well, he's gonna palm the ball. So he he's not he's making the nuanced distinction you are, and he's saying, well, yeah, but I'm not I'm sort of affecting the outcome of the game. But by definition, every NBA referee is affecting the outcome of the game because that's what the NBA is telling us to do. Okay, and I'm not so, I'm arguing that's that's nonsense. That's not what's happening. That he knows exactly what he needs to do to put people on the on on the bench and get his outcome taken care of. So, so I guess before we get on to the like aftermath and and new protocols they potentially put in place, I just want to go back to two things, and they're both kind of relating to the money. So, so the first part was you said earlier that most people don't know how much money he was actually placing on the games and how many of the games he was actually betting that that's been incorrect. So mm -hmm. I guess the first question is, you know, why don't they know and what's the more accurate number? And then the second one is knowing kind of what he's making at the end of the day, how much is speculated that the big people who were involved that are placing the bigger bets, how much did they actually benefit and profit from him fixing those games? Sure. Okay, the first question about the number of games. In Donaghy's plea agreement, for some reason, this I actually don't, I don't know if I ever answered this question. The feds allowed him to plead guilty to activities only during the 06, 07 season. Well, that unfortunately has confused many people in the media. And in fact, you see it even on things like the, the special. They, so they focus on 06, 07 and they go, oh, well, okay, well, it was like, how, however many a dozen games or something like that right some people even say a handful of games in the 06 07 season it's not that at all it was dozens of games for all four seasons so i actually do the math in game in the game of the number of, of uh, number of games but you know 30 to 40 games each season for four for four nba seasons 
that's what I'm saying. Like, the, that's why I don't know why people are so desirous to have this bigger conspiracy that it's, oh, there's this puppet master, David Stern, who's fixing all the games for TV ratings. Guys, slow your roll. Think about what I just said. It's overwhelming evidence an NBA official was fixing dozens of games every year for four NBA seasons. And the public doesn't know that. <laughs> That's crazy. And so, and the second question you asked was, what was it? It was about the money. Yeah. So, so I guess in terms of how, like what they say in the document and other things is he really didn't make that much because he's only making oh, yeah. 2000. So first from Donahue's perspective, how much do you think or. Yes, I got it. And then, and, and then how much the gamblers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Donnie, you, on that on that documentary, he said he made thirty to forty thousand dollars. He says that all the time. In gaming the game, I actually give you the breakdown of how Batista came to his conclusion on how much he paid him, and then I also offer Martino's. So Donaghy says thirty to forty. Martino says that he paid him between one hundred and fifteen to one hundred and twenty. Uh, Batista says that he paid him two hundred and one to two hundred nine thousand in those four months in oh six oh seven. Just and those four months, though. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's just, just that's just just from December to March. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and that's why people say, "Man, Donnie was taking a big risk." Well, that's the thing. Yeah, maybe it's a big risk for thirty grand. Maybe it's not so big a risk for two hundred and ten grand. You know, it's up to up to whatever people think. And the other answer to your question is with regard to the uh, the gamblers. There's no way to know that number. It's it's in the tens, likely hundreds of millions. There's one one person wow. I interviewed. See, one of the things that happened, sports books offshore caught on to onto this. And so they were profiting from it too. One sports book would actually post a betting number for Donaghy's games to get the other sports books around the world to move their their, their numbers. Well, meanwhile, it, that that was that itself was a fake because what people didn't realize was he was posting the number but the sports book wasn't actually taking bets at that number. It was a scam. Wow. And so he alone was profiting hundreds of millions of dollars. That's there's a figure in the book. I, there was no way to check this stuff. Uh, someone told me that they believe that particular person made two hundred million dollars on the scam. Okay, I mean it's yeah, it's huge numbers, and and so then kind of looking to the present day situation, you've already said that had this not spun into something involving professional gamblers, they probably never would have been caught. Is there anything in place now that would make a similar scandal easier to detect? The technical answer is yes, but because of the way Donaghy was doing this, I'm not so sure it would pick up this either. The NBA in response to the scandal said that they're gonna uh, introduce new computer algorithms that are gonna track betting lines. See, my I, I always defended the NBA for the 03 to 06 seasons. The betting lines were moving, but it wasn't in your face screaming, you know, hair on fire. 06, 07, those betting lines were moved. That's like I say, everyone was copying the bets, having no knowledge of the intricacies of the conspiracy. They were just following the lines. And uh, so they they say that they've got things in place now that are monitoring betting lines. I don't know how you could possibly detect, though, if a referee is calling things that are technically correct. There's another issue that you didn't ask me. One of the big problems now is going to be I started arguing about fantasy sports years ago. Well, now that there's sports legalization in the United States, prop bets are going to be a huge problem. The way that they haven't been, by the way, for your audience who doesn't know, prop bets can be everything as simple in tennis. Okay, uh, is you know tennis player X going to have a footfall in the first set? You can literally bet on things like that. Well, the way that 
you prevent fraud on that is you keep the betting uh, the limits uh, low on those. So they're not going to let you bet a million dollars on something like that. So the hope is that because the bet limits are 2,000 or 5,000, okay, you, you can't really do that a lot. But seriously, what's to stop a tennis player from literally having a footfall or, 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 or double faulting to the person at home or in the stands? You go, wow, that's a shame for you know the tennis player. Well, they don't realize that he or she just did that for a cool 10 grand or 20 grand. You know, there's no way you're going to pick up on that. Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of cricket, which has been plagued by what get referred to as, as spot fixing scandals, exactly what you're speaking of. And that ability to have a single delivery, have a predetermined outcome very easy, like to bowl a wide or, you know, from a pitching, like in baseball to say, I'll make sure the ninth pitch of the game will be a ball. Yeah, right. And right, yeah. it, you can also understand from the athlete's perspective, you could almost say, tell yourself, well, this has no influence on the outcome of the game. Like I'm not sure. really selling. I'm not there. I still can maintain my integrity and make sure. a little bit of money. Like who, yeah. who really cares? Yeah. Um, and, and crickets definitely had massive issues with that. Yeah. I mean, and, and I guess, you know, most of these leagues now are getting further and further into bed with gambling mm -hmm. companies. Yeah. Do you think that raises some issues in terms of, you know, they are basically decided that sports gambling is something that they want to actively promote for the most part and be very closely associated with. Does that raise further issues in terms of how much they would be willing to then clamp down on suspicious activity? Generally speaking, it's actually working better. Uh, generally, again, generally speaking, most of the leagues, especially in the United States, and I know this is true in the UK also, they only make these alliances with the assumption and the understanding that they're going to collect unbelievable amounts of data, sport, sport analytics. So the things we just talked about, the harder things to detect. Well, if Frank has a footfall in the first, well, he never has footfalls. You know, like it's still hard to do, but you can actually track that stuff statistically and at least be able to look for things we weren't able to 10 years ago because the systems have gotten so sophisticated. And now we collect so much data once all legalization happened, we've never had this much data and we've never had as many eyes on each game the way we did before. So that's the hope at least. And, so, and then as a, as a, sorry, as a quick follow-up to that, I, is then the big risk presented? I know there's now this huge development in terms of the offshore crypto uh, yeah. sort of game, <laughs> like book bookmakers. Uh, I guess those are virtually impossible to track what the activity is going on there. Mm -hmm. Is that where now the major risk would be in terms of just, that's just a huge black hole from both yes. where the money's coming from and going to? Yes, that's, that's absolutely a, a huge area. And by the way, so much so that there are plenty of leagues that won't permit people to deal in that world for that reason, because they realize they have no control over that. You know, their argument is, look, it might be fine, but we have no way of knowing. And we're not, we're just avoiding that whole sector. Yeah. And that was kind of going to be my question. I mean, so when this scandal took place, sports gambling wasn't legal. And so it was kind of being run a lot through some organized crime. And today, you know, like 2022 now, is organized crime, do they still have a, a large hold on sports gambling? Or is that kind of kind of dissipated a little bit into kind of their their area? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good good question. Well, even in the NBA betting scandal, they were trivia in the grand. You know, they were they were they were they were peanuts compared to the big time pro gamblers. But don't forget, the underground sports betting market is always going to exist. I actually want to write a, an opinion piece about this at some point. People get this wrong. There was a huge article in the LA Times about I don't know a month ago, 
which argued that uh, marijuana legalization was sold on false premises because they argued that the, the underground, the uh, illegal drug market would go away once you legalized it. I don't know who ever made that argument. I would never make that argument because by definition, if you regulate something and tax it, by definition, you're creating a black market because you've just increased the cost to the consumer of whatever product there is. Well, in sports gambling, it's not a matter of creating too much cost, but your local sports book, your you know, the guy at the pub, he'll let you bet on credit. Try that at a legal Las Vegas casino. That's not going to happen. So there's always I've, I've tried. Like, I've tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so it they don't have any bigger role nowadays, but they're, you know, uh, whether whether it's actual organized crime guys or just regular illegal bookmakers, that that's never going away. So so I guess what you're saying is the legal sports market is still just as strong as it was before they legalized yeah. sports gambling. Yeah. We that's by the way, we actually we actually study that. Uh, cuz that was the other argument that we we always wondered well, if the rise of legal sports gambling happens, does that come at the expense of the illicit market? And actually, they're both thriving, and it just showed how big the pie could be. The pie just got bigger. They didn't take a slice of the pie. The pie just got bigger. Which, That's crazy. Which I guess the other argument is, in a sense, right, you're normalizing the concept of betting on sports. So probably the, the people who were going through an, an illegal option might continue to do so it's just a whole new sure. demographic of people you're attracting well, yeah. into the... well and not only that and there were plenty of people who probably who were interested in sports gambling but were nervous because it was illegal and didn't know how, and or didn't know how to navigate that world and that's just been removed yeah so I, I mean i guess part of the reason you're covering this is because of philadelphia and being local to pennsylvania and and kind of being in that environment a little bit and kind of just like you said meeting with someone and talking with someone and, and getting on and it kind of we talked off air that you're you're from Penn State and kind of all that connection brings me towards the you know the scandal that was at Penn State with the football team now what probably 15 years ago almost was there ever any interest in you kind of digging deeper into that or because it wasn't really organized crime and that kind of thing you never really were super interested in it but I feel like just being from someone who was an alumni is from the area that that might have been a case that kind of caught your eye a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, it's not organized crime. But even look, heck, even game in the game wasn't organized crime, yeah. although that was what piqued my interest. But oh yeah, yeah, of course I followed it. Uh, don't forget, I lived there for I don't know ten years, something like that. Um, so yeah, no, no, I I obviously followed it. And I mean that's another reason, case. It, another case, I, I think too that the media probably didn't yes. handle that properly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. The problem with that case is though, like here. I get brought on shows like yours and I get to talk all the time all around the world and people say, wow, this is fascinating. He's exposing fraud in the media and media malpractice and scam, whatever. That's a touchy subject, man. I, I, in my organized crime stuff, I can talk about murders, beheadings, stranglings, no problem. You remotely talk about the Penn State case and people get queasy and it's, you know, it's just messy. Yeah, uh, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess when you're talking about the, the kind of difficulty in talking about some media malpractice, if anything, the the Donaghy scandal is is kind of the perfect use case in oh. showing you that if you want to get caught up in something, it's best to get caught up in a scandal where there is a more appealing, larger yes. conspiracy yeah, as part yeah. of it. It's a great <laughs> point. It's true. You, it's true. But. Well, part of the reason I get so animated with the NBA betting scandal is because I deal with the media so often, not with this, but with more organized crime stuff. And it's a lot of politics and current events. 
I argue that what's been happening with this story, now you can say, oh, come on, Sean, it's a trivial scandal. It's not a trivial scandal in sports history, but if you're not a sports fan and you're just worried about putting bread on the table and living your life, well, my argument is this is happening all the time in the media. That's, that's my issue is when I talk to these news reporters or documentarians and things like that, they, they don't care. It's hard for people to understand how little they care. And they, all, they always say some version of, well, Sean, we don't have your resources or we don't have your time and we have to, we're, we're hurrying to do this. Well, wait a second. Tell your audience that then. Because I'm, look, I'm your audience and I want to be able to pick up the newspaper or read it on now, read it online and be confident that that's fairly accurate so that when I write my stuff and I rely on it, you're not going to tell me, oh yeah, we had to rush that. That was bullshit back then. It's worse now. Well, it's out there for history. Yeah. I've always found that to be one of my issues on a, on, a, on a smaller scale with a lot of the true crime podcasts that come out, because, you know, you kind of you kind of have to go into it with the predetermined narrative that we have to uncover that there was some form of misjustice or that this has been incorrectly reported or tried, because if you just cover a story and go, well, it turns out everything was right. Yeah, right it's yeah, yeah. not a great podcast. Like you have sure. to have the scandal mm -hmm. or else you've just yeah. kind of mm -hmm. wasted your own time. Sure, I agree. I guess on on that uplifting note, <laughs> we can we can maybe I, listen. Don't joke. My students always say that my classes are either frustrating or depressing for just that reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't fill you with confidence about the, no, the world. No, no, yeah. But but. Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I mean, it's a fascinating story, and and obviously for our listeners, you know, if people aren't you know, if this is kind of a new, a totally new story to them, what's the best way? Obviously, they can buy your book, which I assume is sold on, you know, any, yep. anywhere and any, everywhere. Yes. And and how else can they follow you and kind of track your, you know, how you're interacting and covering the story now? Sure. Thanks for asking. Uh, my website is seanpatrickgriffin.net. Sean is S-E-A-N. Griffin is G-R-I-F-F-I-N. seanpatrickgriffin.net. And I'm on Twitter at SPG author, SPG author. And on both of those, on my website especially, but even on Twitter, I try and post as much material as I can because I don't want to be accused of a grifter. People say, oh, he's trying to pitch his book. Well, yeah, obviously that's where all the answers are. But for, for things like this that are where the untold documentary comes out, and I was a part of that process, I was interviewed for it, I knew what was happening. I wanted to be as active as possible because I want people to see like, oh my gosh, how could they do this? I want people to start being more uh, critical when they're reading a newspaper or, or certainly watching TV or watching, watching a documentary. So I post as much stuff on my website and on Twitter as I can for that reason. Yeah, it's great. And, and yeah, hopefully even this podcast will have encouraged people to approach their documentaries, true crime podcasts every, everywhere with a, a little bit a kind of greater degree of skepticism yeah. and maybe do a little bit of their own research exactly too much because that can get yeah. you in trouble too <laughs> all right well guys this has been great yeah thanks, thanks so much really appreciate thank it. you all right take care